1: i'm nil zacharias and you're listening to eat for the planet on this show we try to answer the question how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet the show features conversations with food industry leaders health and sustainability experts as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food My guest on this episode is Louisa Burwood-Taylor, a food and agriculture journalist focused on new technology and startup investment. We discuss the latest food tech and ag tech trends and explore what's getting the most funding and why. We cover the opportunities and risks in this space, including what negative externalities aren't being accounted for as we reimagine the food system. Lastly, we discuss what the future of food may look like and explore different potential scenarios given current trends. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Louisa Burwood-Taylor, thank you so much for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Louisa, so you cover the food tech space and uh, obviously talk to a wide range of entrepreneurs, investors, and others who are working on some really interesting solutions to some of the big, hairy, challenging issues facing our food system today. And then this is a pretty broad question. I'm I'm warning you, but uh, (laughs) what are some of the most interesting new trends that show not just the most promise in terms of uh, their viability, but are also seem to be attracting the most amount of funding. One would say both would lead to the same things, but they're not, that's not always the case. So what's the most interesting? And do you think the funding is going to the most interesting things uh, that show the most promise?
0: Um, great question. <laughs> Definitely not a simple one. You're right. Uh, I mean, I'm going to start with the second half of that question because it's kind of easier to go, you know, looking at the numbers to start with. Um, and we just did a bit of a deep dive on mid-year data for 2021 and, and where investment's going. And it's still sort of the, you know, the usual suspects in terms of um, e-grocery that is, you know, by far the biggest category um, across across geographies. I mean, there's some particularly big rounds in China that happened the first half of this year, but we have uh, cut that out and looked and it's still, you know, very decent Um in other parts of the world, and while it's not, you know, the most exciting, you know, it's certainly very impactful. And I think there's a lot to be done in the e grocery space to improve it. efficiencies, um, to make sure that there's a breadth of, of products that are available. And obviously, it's been such a vital uh, service during during the pandemic. So e grocery is is interesting, um, maybe a little bit kind of more boring to cover. Perhaps, but you know, it's definitely one of the biggest areas. What I what's been really exciting to see though in the wake of pandemic and last year, a big trend that we saw in investment figures was that upstream innovations. And those are the ones which are closer to the farmer, in the supply chain, anything related to food production. Um, and we do include alternative proteins and innovative food there. But that was the first year where investment into upstream technologies overtook those that are downstream, closer to consumer. And I think that really reflected um, an increasing comfort and interest by investors in some of those categories, which have typically been more complicated, more nuanced. So we are talking about biotechnologies. We're talking about supply chain technologies, um, innovative foods, uh, indoor farming, robotics and so on, farm robotics. Um, And, you know, a lot of those are incredibly exciting and very, very diverse, you know, even within biotech. You're looking at gene editing. You're looking at biological alternatives to pesticides and uh, synthetic fertilizers. So it's very broad. But looking within all of those, I'm quite excited about various different models within a lot of those different categories.
1: If if I were to sort of categorize the innovations that are getting funding into one as and and this might not be a perfect uh, way to bucket them together, but uh, I'll give it a shot and see if it makes sense. Uh, One is breakthrough. I've been talking about it in the context of breakthrough technologies versus adaptive technologies. And so when I think of a lot of the supply chain, uh, robotics, um, farm tech or uh, ag tech uh, technologies, they tend to be uh, sort of leaning towards more adaptive technologies that are not just about minimizing, um, you know, carbon output or improving soil health, but are also sort of about dealing with the inevitable and current impacts of climate change, versus in the other category, I put breakthrough technologies, one that is, let's just say, alternative proteins probably qualifies as a breakthrough technology, because it's about redefining what uh, meat would look like if it's cultured in a, in a, in a bioreactor versus from a farm with animals. Uh, if, and, and I don't know if these categorizations are absolute or accurate even, but if you look at it from that lens, how much of the attention from an investment standpoint seems to be going into how do we improve on our current system, make it more resilient, help it deal with uh, changing weather patterns improve soil health, just improve the the output of of land and freshwater use in agriculture versus things that are like we are going to redefine what protein means to uh, us and for the food system.
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting question and and I'm so sort of glad you brought up that distinction between breakthrough and adaptive. You know, I might even argue that maybe the alternative protein space is not that breakthrough necessarily. You know, a lot of the plant-based industry, I think, is, is tapping into essentially existing commodity markets. If you think about some of the products are using soy, being conventionally grown, um, you know, soy is one of the world's most destructive crops to, pl- uh, to grow and a leading cause of deforestation. So I'm what I'm finding more exciting, and I'm, I don't necessarily know that the dollars are going there yet, but I think investors are increasingly looking. So you know, even more transformational, and that's like really truly novel proteins. So think about aquatic plants, and there's a few companies I've been speaking to recently that are doing this. And not only is that those aquatic plants could replace soy um, in plant-based foods in animal feeds. You know, there's all this talk about having to um, replace animal agriculture. I think it's highly unrealistic that's going to happen in the next 10 years or even longer. And we have got quite a dramatic climate crisis at the moment. So I think it's really interesting and exciting when you have companies that are looking to improve the animal agriculture industry, and I think that's very necessary. So by finding new novel types of feed for for animals, such as aquatic plants, and the way that's being produced. So there's some companies that are deploying units on farms so for dairy farms this company called phyto they have these units they deploy on farms it utilizes the manure from the cattle as the as the media for the um the to grow in and so there's a circular economy there they can also have a byproduct of biofertilizers, um which can feed back onto the farm and they're replacing soy one for one or even more they're replacing about 30 to 40 percent of the typical feed that those uh, that those cows are typically eating a lot of that, which would be soy, the transportation of that feed—you cu- you're, because you're localizing it all—you're getting rid of a lot of the carbon emissions from the transportation. There's also some carbon sequestration that that can be happening there, particularly as you're utilizing that manure. Um, so that's much more transformative. You're creating a whole new uh, commodity cycle. I guess you could say commodity market, or I'm not sure the right phrase there, but you're creating a whole new system. Um, and I think that I think. Increasing as investors start to understand these supply chains or supply webs, as people call it now, um, I think you're going to see more interest in in that, in those sorts of transformations.
1: You said a lot of really interesting stuff then. I think I want to pick up on the point about um, whether certain new technologies that are uh, positioned as breakthrough are truly breakthrough versus some that may at first glance seem merely marginal improvements like uh, changing the feed. Uh, or creating a new market for um, aquatic plants as, as uh, animal feed may actually turn out to be more breakthrough from a sustainability standpoint. So which, which then kind of brings me down to the, you know, what problem are we tackling, right? I think we sometimes f- fail to ask that question and people end up arguing uh, whether we need to replace animal agriculture versus improve it. When they're both not even trying to achieve the same thing, they're, they're coming at it with two different, um, I would say, value sets. If you step back and you look at the, the, the breadth of solutions that exists out there, what are the bulk of them trying to solve? Is it all trying to mitigate the impact of climate change, reduce greenhouse gases and improve, improve the resilience and the sustainability of the f- food system? Or are they trying to uh, rebuild it from, from the inside out? Like what is driving the change? What, what is the, mm. When an investor is putting money into a company, what problem do they think they're trying to solve at a high level?
0: Yeah, so, so it's interesting. So the thesis is, has shifted. So when I first started reporting on agriculture in 2013, it was all about um, growing more with less. It was about this growing population. I mean, honestly, I've had a dime for the amount of times I've heard about the 10 billion people <laughs> on the planet and, on, and, on, you know, and so on. Um, it was all about how can we be more efficient, grow more with less. That is, that's shifted. Um, and so whether that could be, whether it's, you know, digital tools that can help you um, deploy precision agriculture or whether it's a new type of um, fertilizer that gives you bigger yields. The, the conversation shifted now and it's more about how can you grow better? And whether that's nutritionally better or environmentally better um, and I think for investors now you know ESG as a concept is now is now table stakes if they want to attract any LPs to their funds they need to have some um, ESG messaging and so a lot of the startups have slightly pivoted their offerings to focus now more on that in environmental um, side of things. Uh, you know, a really great example, and I, I think this is a brilliant company, um, is Benson Hill. And they, uh, you know, in the uh, crop genetics space, they have created a computational biology platform that other um, companies could use to discover traits for crops, um, various different traits. And they have sh- and they also have their own gene editing um, tool, CRISPR 3.0, I think they called it, and, but then they shifted the, the business model essentially to focus on uh, plant protein. And they have used traditional breeding, so they're actually not using any of the gene editing tools, to grow uh, soybean with a high um, protein content. And they have actually even gone downstream and you know, acquired processing plants. They want to sort of protect the provenance of that soy. And they've gone downstream to protect that. And they're now essentially becoming uh, a soy protein uh, pr- provider you know mm-hmm. um and that's really interesting from like a tech standpoint but you know they're doing a SPAC they did a great deal on that they got a valuation of of a billion dollars so I think it's it's just really interesting how you know, the companies and of course they're going to do that but the startups are pivoting to that so another another example is with carbon you know I've seen quite a few startups um for instance in aerial imagery have pivoted their offering from being a tool to help farmers manage their growing season um, to and give them insights about you know, issues in their fields and so on. And they might still be doing that, but a lot of them have added on this carbon monitoring service. Um, and it's still very early days for carbon, and we can maybe get into that. You know, I don't have a huge amount of knowledge, but I know it's early days, and I know mm-hmm. a lot of people are wondering how it's going to play out. But they've started adding on carbon monitoring and, and, and uh you know flying over fields to to be able to verify whether this farmer has shifted some of his practices. He stopped tilling um, or he's started using cover crops and so on. So obviously, this is the nature of startup land is that you can be very nimble and, and, mm-hmm. and do those pivots. Um, so, And I think, you know, whenever we write an article today about carbon, it's probably going to be one of the best read of the week. Uh, and it could be quite interesting. I should do like an analysis of what it was in different years, you know, in 20 <laughs> 2015, it was drones. If I wrote anything about drones, it would be the best read article of the week. Uh, 2016 was indoor ag, 100%. Everyone was obsessed with that. Then we know we got into... what are some of the other ones? I can't think now, like artificial intelligence and then regenerative agriculture. That was last uh-huh. year. And then this year is carbon. So, you know, I think that's really telling. Um, and it's an, and often, you know, people come to Ag Fonda News as, as a place to learn, you know, new investors might come there. And so I think some of those stats are really telling about what they've potentially been told to like go out and research.
1: I also think that, you know, you mentioned the 10 billion thing by 2050. I've been guilty of that for the past five years. Uh, I've stopped <laughs> stopped talking about it too much lately, but it was all about where the population is growing and we're running running out of resources. And there's some truth to, to that, you know, but it's not the complete picture. Um, but it does bring up the question of of time horizons. How useful are they? Should we look at 2050? Should we look at? I'll throw the I often throw 2050 because I think by then, if you haven't solved some of these problems and gotten better. Uh, we're probably going to be in a much worse off place then, than we are right now. So are time horizons even worth talking about? And, and I'll give you one prompt before we get to that, which is, for example, uh, in the cultivated meat or cell-based ag space, time horizons seem to be a big conversation, right? It's always, how soon is this going to happen? How much of the conventional meat will it ever replace? And opinions vary widely, something people as recently said, it's never happening, while others say it'll happen by 2030. So uh, just time horizons in general, and, and maybe you can pick one or two specific technologies and say how useful they are as a, as, some, as a measuring stick, because I'm sure investors, when they're pitched about this, are being offered time horizons. Otherwise, why would they put their money into companies?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I'm not sure I particularly have a good answer for you. I often use that 2050 as a sort of, you know, future-looking. What, a, how transformed is the system going to be by that year? But you know, I think we often have to look at the time horizons that um, the climate scientists use. You know, I think 2030 is is quite a big a big year for some of the targets, and so I think a lot of startups should be using a lot of those horizons. I would imagine if they if they are focused on having a climatic Climatic impact. What I mean, what's you know, it's exciting to see in the in you know the eight years or so I've been covering this. In the early days, indoor ag, and as I mentioned, I think it was twenty sixteen. Any article um, would be you know blow up the internet if you wrote about indoor ag, and it's certainly got on a huge amount of column inches across mainstream media. But it's always been interesting because actually the real impact has been so small. So I think now um, I need to try and remember this, and maybe have to fact check me on this. But indoor agriculture uh, accounts for just 30 hectares of farmland globally, and there are hundreds of millions. And it's always been really interesting because you would never imagine that if you read the press and if you saw how much money has been going into this space. However, I would say that we're at a bit of a pivotal moment for indoor agriculture. And I think it is starting to be um, an interesting industry that is starting to supply a decent amount of a decent amount of produce, you're seeing some scalability, you're seeing companies have more than one farm. Um, you know, you've got companies like Infarm in China and they're deploying the grow cabinets into retailers, it's a very scalable model. Um, so I think it's now less about the promise. I think they've figured out some of the unit economics, you know, the economics around Interag has always been something that's been very challenging. So the thing with, I think, ag tech and food tech is that probably for VCs and coming from consumer industries and so on, the timeline is totally different. And um, it's very hard. I, th- I think it's been quite hard to predict in many ways, particularly because you're working with natural systems. Um, and so some of the unknown challenges, um, you know, would, could have been unexpected um, and unforeseen. So, um, you know, it's interesting. It's just exciting that it's starting to happen now. And I think when I think about the questions that I want to ask companies now, it's changed from like what's the potential of this technology how are you building it and now it's like okay so what are your revenues like what are you actually mm-hmm. doing are you actually having an impact and and i was on a panel the other day for um, the rethink world agri-tech and i was asking investors there which which technology have actually been disruptive like which ones are actually working today and are being disruptive i'm not sure I, you know, I had some responses in terms of some of these companies doing SPACs and so on. Mm. But the thing with those SPAC IPOs is that a lot of the, it's basically startups that are going public. So it's still yeah. very much based on um, potential. Um, and I'm not sure they had a good answer. You know, I think probably in the um, precision agriculture space, we're seeing these platforms um are getting bigger and bigger you're seeing these roll-up strategies so just this week we had news about semios has raised 100 million dollars and they're acquiring various other platforms so i think those those digital tools are starting to be um maybe not disruptive is not the right, the right word but are transforming how how farmers operate and work so it, it yeah it's exciting that we're getting, moving from promise now to actual um reality
1: I'm I'm so glad you're asking that question because um, of uh, investors and entrepreneurs is because we we talk about the promise of technology, but we are not very good at measuring its true impact. And yeah, it, it's sort of early days, so maybe maybe it's it's too early to to uh, draw any conclusions. But indoor ag is a is a great example, right? There was so much hype and promise, and then some hard questions being asked about um unit economics as well as uh, the cost of electricity the viability of it to scale globally in parts of the world where it is you, you don't have reliable, reliable power supply even so it, it isn't a one size fits all solution um and over the years you you i think what ends up happening though the the companies find use cases and adapt their technology to meet those use cases that perhaps is not what the original promise that they sold um, consumers or investors, for that matter. But you know that's just the nature of startups, as you said.
0: Yeah, I mean, and it's interesting you said that one size fits all. I think this is this is a big challenge in food and agriculture because it's not like a consumer technology. It's not like an Uber and Airbnb that's going to be relevant to you know a huge number of consumers on the planet. E- each different microclimate is going to have a you know think about the carbon question, for instance. Having a carbon monitoring technology, it's gonna be needs to be adjusted depending on where you are, depending on the climate, the geography, you know, and so on. Um, and it's the same with, you know, local supply chains operating in different ways and so on. So I think it is quite difficult to create uh off the bat technologies that are definitely gonna be relevant globally and for, for as big a markets as you want.
1: I've got a few questions on your thoughts. And insights on alternative proteins uh, as that's come to, has emerged as the this new category that covers everything from plant-based to cell-based to for precision fermentation and and other new technologies. Um, let's start with plant-based. Do you think it's going to continue its rocket ship growth uh, in, through the next decade? Because you look at year over your growth, it's, it's obviously uh, outpacing everything else, um, and then you also look at investment dollars between that and cell based. It, it's higher than most other sectors and in food tech. Um, yeah, what are your thoughts on plant based and its long term potential?
0: Yeah. Oh, I mean, I think absolutely, it absolutely will grow for sure. Um, you know, consumers everywhere, you know, are, are looking um, for more plant based alternatives. I, I'm really interested in a very good plant based sausage alternative <laughs> because i have issues you know with the pork industry but i do like to eat sausages so um you know i think when the companies start to improve um their offerings on taste it's always going to be um make them you know scalable my concern with plant-based is the is the unintended consequences of scaling some of these supply chains and i referred to it earlier it's not transformational if you're still going to use uh, a mono cropped um ingredient like soy that is still going to be grown in the parts of the world where there are questionable practices um that's not transformational and I worry that um startups you know in their efforts to scale and you can't you know you can't blame them for that are, are going to you know uh continue to tap into those those markets so w- you know I'd love to have the conversation more and, and and you mentioned um at the start of our call, you know, um, my collaboration with Danielle Gold of Food and Tech Connect. And we're working together on a new initiative where we can bring up a slightly more nuanced conversation to, to some of these um, areas. And plant-based is, is one of them to, um, you know, hope that entrepreneurs coming into this industry not only want to have, um, you know, that want to replace animal agriculture, but also want to think about how they can be better than than existing meat products, how they can be healthier um, and, you know, tap into interesting um local supply chains potentially or uplift farmers take them along with them you know and not just necessarily um go back to the big commodity houses and get get huge amounts of their product from them i don't know you know maybe i'm sounding quite unrealistic and idealistic but i think now is the time if we're trying to make a transformation to the food system let's do it let's do it from from the outset um so definitely think there's going to be absolutely much more in the plant-based side i just hope that the next wave of entrepreneurs are really thinking about how to do it um you know even better
1: mm-hmm. um, yeah i think that's that's a fascinating area to explore i myself have spent the better pa- part of this year on this podcast uh having number of those conversations i recently had a deep dive with bruce friedrich of gfi and there's two different visions for the future and and you're right this the one that you're proposing as an alternative where we we, we don't just talk about replacing animals. We talk about improving the entire system as much as I think needs to happen. I also see why it's unlikely to happen. I think back at a conversation I had with uh, Ethan Brown from Beyond Meat back in 2017 or 16, it may have been. Um, and I I believe I asked him. You know, you keep re- you you say your team researches novel proteins to figure out what functions exactly like meat. You're trying to be the plant based version of meat, right? You're just trying to create meat. What if you find one, but there is no market for it? There is no supplier for uh, for that novel protein. This whole talk of um, you know, scanning proteins to find the perfect one that can function like meat—it sounds nice, but the reality is, you picked pea protein because it was available. You know, and you kind of wanted to avoid soy, which is probably the right decision there. But Impossible, on the other hand, decided to go with with GMO soy. So I, I think it does, from a startup perspective, especially if you're trying to scale quickly and you are a CPG company, you are not the biggest buyer of any particular commodity, and so firstly. Your, your product will turn out to be too expensive if you choose something that is the most sustainable, the best uh, farming practices. And what we end up with is uh, commodity crops now in the form of plant-based burgers versus uh, uh, still definitely a huge improvement from the factory farm meat that we get in, in the U.S. especially. Um, but you know, longer term, it's not really that disruptive, I suppose.
0: I. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, absolutely fair enough. And you're right, you know, to make have big impact, but they certainly have, um, you know, that's the that's the route they needed to go down. But once you've gotten to a certain amount of market share, you've got consumers on board, you know, this isn't going away. Um, You've got a captive audience. Why sort of sometimes dismiss your sourcing practices as not being important? Because the main goal is replacing animal agriculture. Don't be dismissive say look this is what we've done now to get to the scale we have and we're excited about our impact but we do have this big research initiative that we're working with different um, suppliers we've got some tests with growers for these different crops seeing how we can um, build up that as a supply maybe we're talking to Cargill and seeing what how they might be able to help us increase the supply of this other new, new novel protein and do it alongside it. You know, and if you have, if you are going after ESG investors, I would hope that they're supportive of that. And, but, you know, maybe it's going to hamper the growth projections and so on, but I think they need to think outside the box and think of, um, think of ways to to do both.
1: Yeah, I agree. And, you know, one of the entrepreneurs I think who is trying to do that is Miyoko, who does talk about creating local uh, supply chains, regional supply chains um, and is, Putting that up front in her approach going forward, and she admits they're not there now, but but you can't not have that intention because if you don't, you will never do it, and no one will ever do it. So that's that's really interesting. I think plant based has a lot of um, as it continues to grow, it'll be interesting to see what new models emerge. Um, I can tell you from my own experience, it's you it's it's hard to 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 do all the right things. Uh, when you also have the pressure of growth and, and scalability. So I totally understand what entrepreneurs go through, but then it doesn't mean because it's hard, we we shouldn't try and at least start having that conversation. So uh, kudos to you for doing that. Let's pivot to cell base now. Um, I guess my question for you is, when is it going to be available? Uh, based on your conversations, um, what are those timelines looking like? um and 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 yeah uh, are they realistic
0: i mean i i probably know as as much as you do but i think it looks to me like it's going to be these hybrid products that will be um that will be coming coming first and that's essentially what just released in in singapore wasn't it Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm i'm not sure if that's if that's what they sort of publicly say but it sounds like there is certainly a significant bit of plant um protein involved in their cultivated chicken nuggets. So I mean, as far as I know, Upside Foods is releasing something uh, next year, early next year. Uh, I think it's that cost thing. And I presume you saw that article um, in the counter by yep. Joe Fassler, which I think um, was excellent and really, really well researched. Um, you know, I mean it sounds quite worrying, frankly, if if a lot of that is 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 true about the about the cost of scaling this. And I think the, you know, the comparisons made with sort of vaccination industry and so on were really helpful and useful to look at. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe it's always going to be a, a premium product. Or maybe it should, it should be the mainstay of premium food products like foie gras and lobster and some of those um, animal products that are more expensive. Um, and, you know, particularly horrendous sort of production practices with foie gras, for instance. So people will pay to, to get a cultivated alternative um you know maybe it's 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 the premium product the plant-based will be the cheap product and the cultivated will be an expensive product um yes i don't yeah i'm sorry i don't really you know i can't really get off on that
1: yeah no i mean it's it, there's too many unknowns at this point and i think it it we all have to wait and watch you know i'm an optimist in general but uh i, I do think we have to uh, have a realistic view of where all of this is going to be and by what time frame right so i guess that leads me to my final question which is uh, let's look ahead at 2050 what do you think the food system is going to look like then
0: yeah and and i love that you asked me that because that's something i ask on my podcast (laughs) (laughs) what are a few a few things that will look different well i i think you know thinking about cultivating meat thinking about indoor agriculture a lot of those technologies have the potential to create these local food systems and we're we're sort of at an interesting time um now where people want local clean foods, but then they've also got you know these these big companies like the Impossibles of the World, which um you know are providing them something, some other sort of reason to purchase. But I I love the idea of these local food systems. Imagine you're going to have um indoor facilities that can grow your vegetables and can grow your hamburgers, <laughs> and they could be operated. By local people, I think one of the missing things when you talk about um, eating for the planet is you know we talk a lot about the environmental, but we also must talk about the social, uh, the social situation because there are a lot of people um, working on farms, working in the food system that um, you know have terrible conditions. Uh, you know you hear horror stories about people. Um, a farm worker is coming from mexico doing backbreaking work living in in awful conditions and similarly with food workers a lot that's come out with pandemic is how poorly how poorly they're treated so i love the idea of local food systems that can involve the local community um there's a lot you know around circular economy i think we starting to scratch the surface of incorporating new buildings having some um food grown on the roofs and using the heating and so on so i think i think they'll i hope I mean, can it be aspirational but i think that you know that could be a very real um a real reality there you know and if you have um i think i'll just stop there uh so that's one thing that i think will be different uh, again you know aspirational and hopeful is that uh regenerative agriculture will be will be more mainstream um and something i could have referred to earlier when talking about the route that a lot of these plant-based companies could go down but that's a real opportunity especially if you're going to be potentially thinking about some novel crops and novel ingredients, but really start creating that from the core and have these regenerative um, growing systems. And whether or not that, you know, there's carbon markets attached to that. I'm a bit sceptical about carbon markets. They've tried them in the past and they haven't necessarily worked. Um, But overall, making, you know, having better communities around how those plant-based proteins are grown um, would be brilliant. And then I think having a consumer that's more engaged, so having uh, more information now, you know, we could go down the route of talking about labeling because that again <laughs> could be something that might, you know, it's not, it may, might not be helpful, but having consumers that are more engaged, really understand where their food is from. Maybe they have a QR code or maybe something fancier than that in 2050. Um, but, I, you know, I, I really think that 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 will be it. And especially if you've got more of these local food systems.
1: Mm. Hopefully blockchain will solve that, whatever that is. Um, I'm still trying to figure it out.
0: (laughs) um,
1: But, you know, that's a great answer. I I, I really appreciate your time today. Enjoyed this conversation. And I really uh, enjoyed reading your your reporting as well. Um, Thank you for all that you do covering this space.
0: Yeah, thank you so much.
1: you've been listening to eat for the planet with nil zacharias if you enjoy this conversation and would like to show your support all you have to do is subscribe to this show and rate and review it to learn more about this podcast or my work go to eftp.co that's eftp.co thank you for listening